Okay, so this morning, as we are gathering here, and forget about time zones and all that stuff, uh, but on Easter Sunday, there are literally billions of people gathered as we are gathered around the world. Like in, uh, if you're in Texas, like football stadiums full of people. If you're in a village in Sierra Leone, you're in some sort of like hut or something. But the common thread that we all have is that as we are gathering, we are proclaiming together, preaching, proclaiming, remembering the reality of the resurrection of Christ and the implications of it. And it's a beautiful thing that we get to participate in. This is something that the church has been doing for 2,000 years, proclaiming that Jesus Christ died for sinners. He rose to new life and he promises that he will come again. And if we put our faith, hope, and trust in him, we will rise in the same way that he rose. And it's a beautiful truth. And that's what we're going to talk about today. If you have a Bible, grab it and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, you can download one on your phone. There's free Bibles on that table that are our gift to you, uh, or the verses will be on the screen and you can follow along. And what we're going to do this morning is just work through a passage of scripture and just talk about the implications of the resurrection. What does all this mean? What is the big deal? What, what, is it, what does it mean for me today that a man 2,000 years ago that I may or may not believe in uh, lived, died, and rose again? Why does all that matter? So if you have your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's get right to work. Here we go. Picking up in verse 14, the Apostle Paul writing this letter to a group of Christians in a city of Corinth who would have been gathering, not quite like this, but gathering as the church to hear what he had to say. Here's what he writes to them, he starts by saying this in, in this passage we're going to look at, verse 14, for Christ's love compels us. So he's writing to this group of Christians and he says, the love of Christ compels us. Now there's a whole context that the Apostle Paul is speaking into as he communicates what he's about to communicate to this particular group of Christians. And I, I don't want to go into that this morning, but, but here's what I want us to see. He's saying something here that's pretty profound. Pretty significant. He's saying there's something about the love of this man named Jesus that compels us. Now, if you were to take that word compel, if, if you know the way that the Bible was written, it wasn't written in English, it was written in Greek, and you take that Greek word, there's a number of different ways that you could potentially translate that Greek word. Uh, one of the ways is the word control. So Christ's love controls us. Uh, another way is the word pressure. So Christ's love pressures us. And what Paul is trying to communicate to this group of Christians, what he wants us to know, because he is also writing to the church today, is that there is something so extraordinary, so profound about the love of Jesus that it has such a direct impact on his life and should subsequently have such a direct impact on our lives that it actually changes the way that we live. It controls us. It compels us. It, it pressures us, not in the pejorative sense, right? Not in the negative sense, like peer pressure, but it does something to us in such a way that it constricts, it confines, it moves us in a particular direction because it's so extraordinary. Wow. So, so what is it about the love of Jesus that is extraordinary? Because I think if we were just to take a straw poll, we would all admit, acknowledge, no matter you know, where you're at in your faith journey, uh, you know, maybe this is your first time in church, uh, maybe you've never been to church, maybe you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you've never been a follower of Jesus. If you were just to walk the streets of Victoria, one of the least church cities in North America, and just to ask the question, 
Like, what do you know about Jesus? Do you, do you have, have you heard of him? Have you thought about him before? Like, you're going to not find a person most likely that hasn't at least heard of him. Right? He's an extraordinary person. Right? There's more books that have been written about him, more art that has been drawn of any person in human history, more songs sung about one individual than this man Jesus. So it's clear that he's extraordinary. Is that what Paul's talking about? He's a big deal. Kind of, but not really. Right? It's, it's more than just he's a celebrity. It's more than he's just popular. There's something very specific about the very essence and nature of who Jesus is and about his love that compels Paul and should compel us. So what is it? Well, he's going to tell us. Go figure. Look at the next half of this verse. So verse 14, we'll just go back to the beginning. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Verse 15 and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. That's that whole idea of being controlled by or compelled by or pressured by. Should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So Paul is saying there are two very specific things about this man Jesus and about his love that are compelling, controlling, that, that, that influence us in such a significant way that when we fully grasp them, they radically change our lives. What are they? The first one is this. He says Jesus died. He died. Now, what's the big deal about that? Lots of people die, right? I think the stats are like 10 out of 10 people die or something like that. That's what I've heard. I Googled it. I don't know if you can trust that or not. Wikipedia. 10, 10 out of 10 people die. So Jesus died. What's the big deal? Well, it's not just that he died. Well, he died on a cross, right? Well, that's not that big a deal either because actually like thousands and thousands of people have died on crosses. Thousands of thousands of people have died for other people. So it's not even significant that he died for like other people, that he was like sort of a sacrificial leader. That's not a big deal. Well, what's the big deal about the death of Jesus? Well, the big deal about the death of Jesus is the claim that Jesus made about who he was, why he came, and why he died. If you were here a couple days ago in this room, we celebrated Good Friday. What's the celebration of Good Friday all about? It's about the death of Jesus on the cross. But, but it's very specific, what he was seeking to accomplish. Yes, he, he definitely is a good example. But that's not the totality of why he died. Yes, he is a moral you know, leader, but that's not the totality of why he came and why he died. Yes, he's sacrificial, but that's not the totality of why he died on the cross. Well, what is it, Chris? Let me tell you. I'm glad you asked. He died on the cross in our place for our sins. That is the claim of the scriptures. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul will say at the end of this passage that we are reading. That he died in our place for our sins. That God made him to become sin. In other words, that the world is broken. It's dark. It's, there's pain. There's hurt. There's heartache. And, and we can attribute that to just bad luck or, or, or cosmic whateverness or karma. But the Christian worldview, the Bible teaches that the, the brokenness in the world is the fruit of the brokenness in our lives, which is the fruit of the brokenness in our heart, which is the essence of what sin is. And that Jesus actually came to die on the cross for the brokenness of the world, for the sin of the world, for the deception and the death and the darkness that dwells in our hearts, in my heart and in your heart. But there's something else, the second thing that the Apostle Paul talks about that, that compels him about the love of Jesus. And notice what he says right at the end of verse 15. It says that he was raised again. Jesus died on the cross. He was buried in a tomb just as we sang about. And then he was raised to new life. 
Now, why is this significant? Well, because 10 out of 10 people die, but 10 out of 10 people stay dead, except for one guy. It's Jesus. He said that he came from heaven to go to the cross, to die in our place for our sins, to rescue us, to save us, to redeem us, to make us whole and to make us new. Lots of people say lots of things. But he also said that after I'm buried in the tomb three days later, I will be raised to new life. And he was. He was. And it's the fact of his resurrection that validates that he was who he said he was and that what he did is good, right, perfect, and true. Every other worldview, every other religion, every other religious leader, every other hero that we have ever known died, was buried, and stayed dead. I'm not here to cast aspersions on other religions or other worldviews, but in the Muslim tradition, Muhammad is the greatest prophet. We can go find his tomb. In the Jewish tradition, Abraham is, is one of the, the, the forefathers of, of the Abrahamic covenant. We, we know where he is. We can go find his tomb. Gandhi, Buddha, and on and on and on we go. Where's Jesus? He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. Right? He's, he's alive. So, so what, it, what does this mean that he is alive? Sorry, you're like, whoa. Well, yeah, yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. We should, we should be excited about this. Because here's, here's what it means that we can trust what he says. We can trust what he has done. And we can trust that he is who he said he was. And here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. And, and I don't want you to miss this. That there's something about the reality of this event that is so, it is so significant. It is so earth-shattering. It is so life-altering that it it has drastically changed the way that I live my life. So what is it? Because here's the, here's the problem, okay? Here's what can happen. We can look at the events of the life and ministry of Jesus. We can look at the cross and the resurrection. And we can start to think about them as historical facts, Right? And I've done that many times on an Easter Sunday. I'll come up on the stage and I'll, and I'll try and compel you that this actually happened in history. And I'll give all these arguments and counterpoints and arguments. Pfft, not today. Okay, that's, that's not the point. Because that's not what Paul is saying. Paul's not saying I can prove it's true. Although I think it is, it can be proven. I think it is a historical fact. The scriptures make those claims. But, but here's what Paul's saying. There's a shockwave that has been sent through human history. A spiritual shockwave that has been sent through human history as a result of what Jesus did on the cross and as a result of his resurrection. There's been a lot of big events that have taken place in the history of the world. We could just start listing them off. Some of them good, some of them bad, some of them ugly. Some of them had significant impact on the world. But what Paul is saying is that this event sent a spiritual shockwave that changed human history forever. Why? Here's why. Because the reality of the resurrection exposes something in the human heart and exposes something about the very nature and essence of who God is that I think collide in a way that is beautiful. Beautiful. One of the greatest needs that you and I have as human beings is this desire and this need to be loved. 
If you were to actually go and just look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, not to get too philosophical this morning, but like the second to last on the hierarchy of needs is, is what he calls this, this, uh, this stratosphere of like esteem, to be valued, to be cared for. Right? And you just think about this for a second. Think about all the things we do to be loved. Right? I wore this fancy outfit because I wanted you to like think, wow, Chris dressed up today. <laughs> no, but just think about it. Just thank you, somebody. That was my wife, I'm sure of it. <laughs> she picked out an outfit, and then I totally called an audible at 5 in the morning. Not, not going to lie. Um, sorry, baby, I love you. No, but just think, just think for a second. Most of the decisions, probably subconsciously, okay, but most of the decisions we make in a day are made because we have a desire to be accepted. Right? The way we vote, who we hang out with, the way we dress, the, the language we use, how we spend our money, all these things. It's like we, we want others to think well of us. And again, it's probably hidden in the subconscious somewhere, but it's there, right? I mean, if you want to get super like dark, let's get dark, why not, why not? Like, just, just like think about some of the relationships you might have had. Like, if, if, if you're married, you know, like, but previous to marriage, right? Like, you, you know, girls that date the wrong guy. Why do they do that? Why, why does a girl date a guy that she knows is bad news, that all her friends are telling her is bad news, and then sure enough, she gets into the relationship, and he's bad news. And then she feels, like, discarded, and, you know, just, why does she do that? Why does she go through that process? Because she just wants to be loved. She's, she's willing to allow herself to be harmed, to be maligned, to be taken advantage of for that just that moment of intimacy. When he snuggles me on the couch, when we are sexually intimate and I feel close to another person for just a moment, even if I know he's going to be a total bleephead right after, it's worth it. Why do men just give themselves away? Why do they do this? Why, why do we do this kind of stuff? Because we have this intrinsic desire to be needed, to be wanted, to be loved. There might even be some people in the room, you might be here and you're like, that's not me. I don't give a crap what people think of me. Well, my experience tells me that the reason people behave like that is because it's actually just a giant defense mechanism to keep everyone out here because you don't want them to actually know you and then you don't have to worry about being rejected by them. So it's, easy, it's easier to just be a jerk and create a self-fulfilling prophecy where everybody rejects you already and then you can say, well, they don't really know me because I kept them, you know, right? We all desperately want to be loved. And our greatest fear, actually, is that we would be rejected. Some of us are in marriage relationships. The most intimate relationship of all relationships that we know of, between humans at least. And we keep secrets. And not like, I'm not talking about like massive secrets, but I'm just talking about like, like things to survive the marriage, right? Like I'm not going to tell him what I really think. I'm not going to tell her what I really think. Some of us have these thoughts. Like they go something like this. If they really knew me, if they really knew what I was thinking, they would reject me. So, 
so what does this have to do with what the Apostle Paul is saying? Well, here's what he's saying, right? He says, Christ's love compels us. Why? Because one died for all and was raised. So here's what Paul is saying about Jesus. Okay, this is, this is crazy. The claim is that he's God. The claim is that he's, he knows all. You know, before the foundations of the earth, he actually knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows the thoughts before you even conceive them. In other words, here's what Jesus does. He looks directly into your soul. And he sees and he knows the darkest thought, the worst moment. The thing that you think if anyone else knew, they would reject me. He knows it. doesn't reject you. He dies for you. He doesn't say, I'm finished with you. He says, it is finished. He doesn't say, you're not good enough. He says, you know what? I'm going to take that from you. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to be raised to new life. Here's, here's what Paul is saying. I have tasted and seen of a love like no other love I have ever tasted and seen of before. And it is changing me and transforming me. See, it's one thing to know about Jesus, to know some facts about him, to know some verses. That's good. I endorse all of that. (laughs) It's another thing to know that. I want you to do something with me for just a second. I'm going to take a risk here, but I think it's worth it. I want you just to close your eyes. Just close your eyes. Bow your heads, whatever whatever you need to do to just create some space. I just want you to breathe for a second. Just slow down and just listen. We'll walk us through a little thought experiment. Now, I know. I know that in this room, there is a long list of things There is guilt around. There is shame around. There is fear. If my parents found out, if my husband found out, if my wife found out, if my kids found out, if my church family found out, if you knew. It could be things that you've done. Maybe it was something that was completely out of your control. Maybe it was something that was done to you. And it hurts. It's sad. I want you to imagine that Jesus is there in the room with you while that's happening. How do you see him? Where is he sitting? What is his posture? What does his face look like? What is he saying? My guess is that there are many of us who have a picture in mind of Christ that he is just terribly disappointed with us. 
maybe angry, maybe frustrated, maybe exacerbated. Why can't they get it right? Why are they doing this again? And because of that, there's this distance that has been placed between you and Christ. I mean, and don't get me wrong, like you, you're still able to participate. You come to church gatherings, you read your Bible, but, but like, I just mean like there's like a distance there. Friends, Jesus is sitting there with you and he is grieved for you, not because of you. whispering words of grace and mercy over your brokenness. He's inviting you to experience forgiveness. He's inviting you to experience wholeness. He's inviting you to experience the fullness of his love and his grace. He's literally, if if he's in the room with you, he's putting his arm around you. He's weeping with you and he's, he's wanting to take your brokenness from you. Here's what he's saying. I see you. I see all of you. And I love you. Will you receive that? See the Apostle Paul, you can open your eyes if you're still if you're still with me, if you haven't fallen asleep yet. What the Apostle Paul is saying is, I experienced that. And he compels me. I don't want to live for myself anymore. I want to live for Jesus. I've experienced the fullness of what Jesus has to offer. And it is changing and transforming me in a way that I cannot describe. Because his love is so radical. It's like nothing I've ever encountered anywhere before in my life. And I just want to encourage you. This morning, if you have not encountered Christ in a real and personal and significant way, this is Easter, right? It's not Christ rose, it's Christ is risen. He is alive. He is with us. He wants to walk with us. He wants you to know him in the intimate, in the intimate parts of your life. He wants to walk with you. That is the beauty of what the Apostle Paul is saying. And what Paul is, Paul is able to say that my life is compelled by the love of Christ because I am I'm experiencing the resurrected Christ all the time. And this is what he wants us to know about Jesus. But he goes on, he says more. Look at what he says next in verse, uh, verse 16. He says, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. So so in other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying is like, I used to look at people a particular way. And then I had this encounter with Christ and it radically changed how I saw everything. Now, if you have ever been in love, you understand what this is like. Right? You, you have a particular way of viewing things, you fall in love, and now you're willing to do very different things than you once were because you are in love. In fact, that's probably one of the telltale signs that you're falling out of love, that you're no longer willing to do those things. Like, like I, I met my wife, like, 20, 20 years? 20 years we've been married now. Okay, 20 years. And, and like, man, I gotta do stuff, right? I get to do stuff, I mean, for my wife. I get to. So we do this thing called Meatless Mondays. Right? It's not my idea. There's no way I'd ever come up with this, but I love Meatless Mondays. Why? Because I love my wife. I watch chick flicks. 
Why? Because I love chick flicks? No, because I love my wife. I made the family watch a non-chick flick uh, this weekend, and I haven't heard the end of it. It's like the worst movie I've ever seen. Like, oh, kids were, oh, it's terrible, terrible. Back to chick flicks we go. Right, we eat soup in my house. I can't stand soup. Soup is like a salad with water on it, like boiled. It's like, who came up with this? This is just like, this is lame, this is dumb, this is a bad idea. Just meat, just eat meat. That's what we should do. It's the right thing. It's good, it's godly, it's in the Bible. But I eat soup on a very regular basis. Why? Because I love my wife. I love her. It changes the way you live when you're in love with someone. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying. I've encountered Christ, and now I see things differently. But notice what he says here, right? He says, I once thought of Christ in the same way, but now I've had a different experience with him. And this is, I, I can't impress this upon our hearts in a more serious manner than, than, than Apostle Paul is. But, but here's what he's saying. It is not enough to just know about Christ. You must actually have relationship with him. And, and this is the reality of what the resurrection is trying to convey to us, is that it is not just a historical event that once took place, but rather this is the ongoing life of the Christian, is to encounter the resurrected Christ, to encounter the reality of resurrection, of renewal, that our lives are this constant cycle of cross and resurrection, death and life, sin and forgiveness, loneliness and experiencing the fullness of the grace that God has to offer us. But here is the danger for us. The resurrection becomes a thing that happened. I can talk about it. I can pontificate about it. I can quote verses. I can quote arguments. I got all kinds of stuff in my arsenal to talk about resurrection. But I don't know it. It's a dangerous place to be, friends. It's a very dangerous place to be. To be so close to Christ, but yet not actually know Him. I want you just to think about, we went through the Gospel of Matthew for a long time. The harshest words Jesus ever spoke were to the religious leaders, and where were they standing? Next to Jesus. Who were the ones that killed Him? The religious leaders. What the Apostle Paul is saying is, you have to have this encounter with Jesus, this personal encounter with Christ. And it's not a thing that happens in the past. It's a thing that happens, it should happen daily in our lives where we are constantly being renewed by the gospel. As we're listening to Tim's story on video, you're hearing the power of the resurrection in his right now. This is, this is the life of the Christian to experience the resurrection on an ongoing basis. And then Paul goes on to say this in verse 17. And look at what he says. It's so beautiful. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ... They're a new creation. The new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that for those of us who have come to faith in Jesus, we've had this encounter with Christ. We are like a new creation. That what once defined who we are no longer defines who we are. That we have been saved, we have been forgiven, we have been changed, we have been transformed. And it's like in a moment. right? Today we're going to have the privilege, like Dan is going to get baptized right after the gathering out in the parking lot. I encourage you all to stay. 
Right? It's great. Yeah. Easter Sunday, baptism. It's great, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's probably greater than that even. Yeah. Um, but, but here is what this is a testimony of. It is literally a living picture, por- portrait of the resurrection. That's what baptism is. It's a, it's a, it's a man who's going to stand in a horse trough full of hose water, which means it's probably cold. He said it's not that bad. I think he's lying. And he's going to go under the water and come back up. And what is that a picture of? It's a picture of verse 17. The old is gone and the new has come. Jesus died on the cross, was buried for three days, and he was raised to new life. It is a, it is a living picture of resurrection taking place in a person's life. It's beautiful. And the Apostle Paul is saying, as you have this encounter with Christ, this is what our lives actually begin to look like. They begin to look like resurrection, which is what he goes on to say. He goes on to say that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Listen to what he says. Not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, what Paul is saying is this beautiful truth of what Jesus has done. He has removed every single barrier out of the way of us coming into a relationship with God. See, we can come up with all kinds of reasons why we should not come to faith in Jesus. Right? We have intellectual ones. And some of us might have like an intellectual argument why we might not want to come to faith in Jesus. Some of us maybe have social ones. Like you grew up in a family that like didn't really portray the gospel well. Right? You kind of have like some church hurt or some church baggage or some Christian baggage. All those are real. But at the end of the day, here is what the Apostle Paul is saying. That in Christ, every single reason that we have to not have a relationship with God has been taken away. See, most of the world has a view of God that sounds something like he's up in the sky and we have to do something to earn his favor and his approval. And the Apostle Paul is saying, no, it's actually the complete opposite. Jesus came to us. He removed every obstacle and he has reconciled, made right, made us right with God. That is what he accomplished. And he has given us, the church, the ministry of reconciliation. And look at what he says Verse 20, we are therefore God's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Do you know what this means? This means that the message of reconciliation, the message of Easter, the message of what Jesus has done for us in resurrection, changing us, transforming us, putting on display for us the love of God, We experience it, and then that message has been entrusted to us. Notice notice what Paul says. He says, as though God were making an appeal through us. How does the world come to know about reconciliation? How does the world come to know that they can be reconciled to God? I don't know. Hopefully they saw like a post on social media about the church and showed up. Nope. Through us. 
you know, one of the things I love about Easter is going on social media and seeing all the, like, this is like, it's Christian day, right? It's the one day that it's socially acceptable to post that you're a Christian. Uh, in my world, in my social media world, it's full, it's like what I call pastor Twitter. It's full of pastors, right? So we all get on there and we talk about how awesome our stuff is this week. And I just, I love, I'm like, how can every church be the most amazing church in the world? Is that possible? This is going to be the most amazing in the world. I'm like, well, there can actually only be one amazing in the world if you want to. Like, we could evaluate and, like, give one a trophy for that. Can it just not be good or okay? Like, we're going to have an okay Easter Sunday. Come check it out. Like, ours is okay. Like, honestly, like, there's churches that are way cooler than our church. Way cooler. And, and I get it, right? It's been a couple hard years Christian's not able to gather. But, but here's what we're all going to be super pumped about as pastors. And, and I'll just be honest. Like, I'm, I don't get super pumped about this stuff anymore. I used to, but I don't know. Maybe I'm just getting old and cynical. I don't think so. We're going to be pumped that the room's full. A lot of people showed up. Okay? It's cool. It's cool when the room's full. It feels good when the room's full. It's nice to hear all the voices this morning. I love it. I do love it. I do love it. I do love it. Go back to verse 20. Christ's love compels us. Okay, all the way back to verse 14. Christ's love compels us. He's so amazing. His love changes me. It controls me. It pressures me to live a different way. Skip ahead now to verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. How is the world going to know about the resurrection of Jesus if we keep it in here and on our social media feed. They aren't. Our lives become the living testimony through which God makes his appeal. Your story, your life, your life lived with your church family out in the community, amongst those who don't yet know Jesus. Just think about this. It's beautiful. It's a painting that God is actually painting in our city of resurrection. Of the change and the transformation that resurrection has on a person and on a people. It's beautiful. God wants everyone to know the Father wants everyone to know about His Son, Jesus. Through your life and through my life. Your life is one of resurrection. I'm going to invite the band to come up as we close. And here's where I will close the last verse. Second half of verse 20, actually, Paul writes, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Then verse 21, he writes, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says, We implore you, be reconciled to God. There's a couple things I want to say about what he is saying there. The first one is this if you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus. Man, just hear the words of Paul, the word implore, like he's literally begging, he's pleading with those who he's writing this letter to. Be reconciled to God, friends. 
If, if you're here and you, you've never heard of the love of Jesus, I would plead with you, be reconciled to God. But honestly, I'm way more concerned about those who are here who call themselves Christians and who have not experienced the resurrection of Christ in a long time. It's become a historical event that you know about. But you haven't been changed, not in a long time. You haven't been transformed, not in a long time. You can talk about it. You could probably talk about it better than I could, to be honest. But you don't know it. You don't know it. Hear the words of Paul. Be reconciled to God. He invites you. He invites me. He invites all of us to come to him. To come sit at his feet, to experience him. And listen, it doesn't matter how long it's been, friends. It's beautiful. It doesn't matter if it's been 10 years. It doesn't matter if it's been 20 years. It doesn't matter if it's been 50 years. It doesn't matter if, if you've never done it before or if you've done it a thousand times. His invitation to all of us is to come to him. He's pleading with all of us that we would come to him and be reconciled back to God experience the reality of the resurrection, experience the fullness of what God has for us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he is making us new and 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 he is making us new time and time again and you will experience brokenness and he is making you new and you will experience pain and he is making us new. You will experience the effects of sin and brokenness and abuse and hurt and heartache and divorce and all kinds of ungodly, awful, evil things. And guess what, friends? He is making you new. Be reconciled to God. Bring your pain to Him. Bring your hurt to Him. Bring your heartache to Him. Bring, maybe you don't even have that yet. Bring that to Him. Bring it to Him. And be reconciled to God. Because he's so good. He is so good. Let me pray for us, Lord Jesus. You are so good. Every barrier has been taken away by you. In the cross and in the resurrection, every barrier has been taken away. We're going to make up all kinds of barriers. May we just hear your voice say to us, no, I took that one away too. No, but I got, I got my own special barrier. Just hear his voice, friends. He's taking it away. He's inviting you to come to him and to experience him. To experience the power of resurrection. Not just the idea of it, but the power of it. He wants to have relationship with you. He wants to know you. And so Jesus, we just invite you to come. We invite you to be with us right now. Friends, invite him to be with you. 
We invite you into our story wherever we are at on the cycle. It could be cross. It could be Saturday of hopelessness. Or it could be, it could be Resurrection Sunday in our lives right now. We invite you into that story. We want more of you. We want to experience all that you have for us. And so we invite you to come right now. And Lord, I pray for us. I pray for us that we would not become cold. We would not become hard. But this resurrection would be our every day. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's children said,